Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mino Lion Media presents Business First. Hi, all, and welcome to a new episode of Business First with Sonia Aline. I am your host. And uh, today we are talking with a gentleman who professionally has worn many hats and has a wide range of expertise. But the one thing he has in common is economic empowerment and focusing economic empowerment and development on communities that look like people of color. And so I welcome Roderick Hardman, who is the founder and CEO of Urge Development Group and Urge Imprint. How are you, Rod? I am awesome. Thanks for having me this evening. Thank you for being here. This is, I'm looking forward to this conversation that we'll be able to share uh, with our audience and hoping that they will, knowing that they will be inspired by your journey and the work that you're doing. But before we get into your professional background, I wanted to go back a little further. I have read an article where you had said, number one, you grew up playing Monopoly, which is interesting because we'll get into how Monopoly is connected to uh, a lot of the work that you do or, or, or what you were doing. On, on a board game that is connected to a lot of what you do today, uh, but also how you would, I believe it was with your cousin, you would hang out with him and actually envision where you thought you were going to be. And I'm always, I'm personally, I'm always fascinated by people who at a very young age have a glimpse or an indication of what their trajectory is going to be way before they even get there. And so what was going on in the mind of this kid from Detroit who knew he was going to do big things one day? I wish I could say I knew I was going to do big things. I would say I was hopeful. I was willing to put the work in. Uh, and I was probably, if you let my mother-in-law tell it, I was uh, a little probably too arrogant not to believe I couldn't get it done. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so when we were little, um, you know, you know, we come from a very diverse family. You know, my mom's a kind of very educated, master degrees plus, could have been a PhD, that whole nine. My dad's a blue collar guy, right? Didn't finish high school, not even got sure he got past ninth grade, right? Grew up in the Jim Crow South, had to fight to survive and literally had to flee just to stay alive, right? Uh, and growing up in Detroit, Michigan, which is, you know, a unique place given the fact that it is uh, a majority all black city, right? With when I was growing up, all black, the mayor was black, city council was majority black, the, uh, business owners were black. Uh, we had a sense of self pride and a sense of you could accomplish almost anything. And so I, I distinctly remember being young and being at the top of the Renaissance Center, which is one is the tallest building in Detroit, and being able to think about what would it be like to buy blocks in the city of Detroit. So look over the city and say, what if I did this? Could we buy that block in that block in that block? And, and so was, I just want to interrupt really quickly. So was that the Monopoly game in the background? Because as a kid, 
like I remember saying, oh, I want to live here, right? Or I, I want to be able to have this view. But I don't ever remember me or my friends saying, I want to own this block or buy this block. And so what was it in you at that age that said, no, I want to own this stuff? So I think it was probably spurred by Monopoly. Uh, it was, you know, I grew up playing Monopoly. Like, I, I, I don't think I've lost more than two Monopoly games in wow. 30 years. <laughs> Um, I'm a fanatic about it. Only person that's beat me recently is my daughter, who's eight. Uh, wow. Uh, I guess that tells you where she's headed. But, <laughs> you know, we grew up playing Monopoly. I grew up in a family that had a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and I didn't really appreciate it. So uh, my mom's side of the family is from Mississippi. They own 140 acres of land. So just imagine being able to buy, acquire 140 acres of land and hold it from 1940 to the day. I mean, that's a whole sense of strength and, uh, and struggle and perspective and, and having the foresight not to sell. Um, I had a uh, family here that were into real estate development at an early age. I also had, um, you know, my brother was very entrepreneur. He had an entrepreneurial focus always, right? And so business and, you know, the ability to participate in it, I didn't fully appreciate it. But I was around it enough, right? Uh, and it's this whole kind of evidence of hustle. And so, as you add that on top of the me playing Monopoly growing up, there wasn't a sense of it was just part of my kind of my old lexicon, right? And so, yes, it was like, oh, we can own that. Just like I bought, you know, uh, St. Charles Place, Connecticut. <laughs> I could buy Boardwalk, or I could buy Woodward Avenue in Detroit. I could buy Grand River. Right. And so and that's how it started. And it, it became a thing of no one ever told us what we couldn't do. There was no one ever said, you can't do that. You can't own that. It was you have the talent, the intellect. And if you do people right and treat people right, then all of it's possible. Right? And so I've always had a mindset of, you know, I've always been interested by it. But it's also been emboldened by the fact that I was kind of supported and encouraged just to do what was impossible. Wow. All right. And so fast forward now, and and, and you and you've done a lot of things in between. You you worked on Wall Street in New York. That's where we met when you were in in New York. And you went back to Detroit, and we talked about this um, last week. You went back to Detroit, a city that that although it was your hometown, it was a place that people had kind of written off particularly mm -hmm. after 2007. Like no one thought it was, it could possibly uh, come back. But you and some other folks um, who believed in the city have gone back and really worked on developing and reimagining, which, uh, you know, that, that term comes up a lot in the things that have been written about you, that your company wants to reimagine what Detroit could be like. And so, I'd like you to talk about that, particularly in terms of, you know, I live in I live in Brooklyn, a place that is um, being gentrified. And I don't know if there's a lot of reimagining. There's a lot of moving and shifting of people out of, of homes. Uh, and so I like this concept of uh, reimagining a place where you can make it economically feasible, but it's also inclusive. And so if you could talk about your your inspiration for going back home, but also the passion you have for making sure that this is an, an, an inclusive growth um, opportunity for everyone. Yeah, so going back home, people thought I was crazy. Uh, you know, so just to put in context for you, I uh, am a managing director 
at a large you know, Wall Street firm. I run a business that's several hundred million dollars, um, has billions of dollars of assets under administration. Um, and I have the rest of my career ahead of me. And at that, and at that point, I decide there's something more for me to do. That while staying here and making inroads for other individuals to enter the, the financial service space is important, that I had a different calling. I've always been committed to Detroit. So I started my commitment to Detroit, wow, I guess at this point, 10 years before I actually moved back home full time. I started commuting between Detroit and New York. So every week I would get on a plane and either fly to New York or some other city I had to go to and then come back home. And I did that for 10 years straight. Um, and so it was it was kind of already foreshadowed that I'd be back home. But actually making the lick was a was a really pivotal change for me because I realized that as much as I loved what I did in New York, there was a piece of passion, right, of purpose that was missing. Right. We were doing good work for our clients. But I couldn't see myself in the work. Right. You know, at some point after 10 years of going into a boardroom and people assume that even though you're the business head, that you're the guy that works for someone else, gets a little wary. After so many times of a client telling you or giving you the impression, either directly or indirectly, that they wish somebody else was in charge, that gets a little wary. And so I decided I wanted to do work where I could actually see the change, see the impact, and that it connected to me a little deeper. So when the opportunity came, I packed up my bags, I semi-retired, and I moved back to Detroit. And it was a scary time for me because while technically I knew I had the capability and skills to do whatever was next, part of me was unsure because I had only worked at a Wall Street firm for 20 years. I wasn't quite sure how much of that was my talent and ability and intellect or how much was the brand name on my business card. But I had to go through this process of self-rediscovery to help myself understand that actually it was me making this leap and not I wasn't going to be left by myself without this firm branding behind me. Well, and you know what? I'm, I'm glad you you have brought that up. And, and I, I don't want to lose the space of, of where you're going. But I think that's a challenge for a lot of people. So could you just spend a little bit more time there in terms of how you did find the confidence to know that you have that you that you could actually do this? I think it's why people stay in jobs. It's why people don't pursue their passions for exactly that same reason. That's a great. It's a it's an extension of the imposter syndrome, right? Um, and I remember you know spending so much time when I first started in New York, you know, trying to be this perfected image of what black men should be in corporate America, right? Which actually mimics, mimics everyone else but yourself, right? And as I started to let that guard down and to embrace who I was, the more successful I became, right? When I started to grow facial hair, when I started to, when I used to wear bow ties, having my own image, right? It became, as I became comfortable with myself, my success took off. So as I, when I left, it, I tried to take as much of that with me, but I still was afraid, to be honest with you. And luckily, I had a great support system around me. My family were like, of course it's you. You know, you've been, in, you ran multiple things, you did multiple jobs, you were successful at all of them. All that couldn't have been, you know, some other, some other outside force. It was you. I had great friends around me who had already made leaps. Like, boy, get out of here. Go do go get the work done. Right. You got this. 
and encouraged me to keep pushing even when I was unsure of myself. Um, and then honestly, I just had to get on my knees and pray, to be honest with you. Right. I had to ask for strength. Right. I had to make I had to you know ask for strength from the most high as well. Just kind of make sure I was in tune with the universe. And I tried to stay in line with my purpose. And that's what it really forced me to do. Right. Really commit to my purpose of impactful systemic change in our communities. And what as long as I was doing that, I was going to be OK. So when you got to when you got to Detroit and well, you had been going back and forth to Detroit when you finally settled in Detroit, what was the first thing that, that you actually did or what was what was the goal for you to to um, to accomplish? That's a good point, because what I and what year was that? Because this was so 2007 was was the, the Great Recession. Um, like I said, Detroit had been struggling for a really long time. Um, people would say that it's still struggling. What year did you go back? I finally relocated full time in 2016. And so that's when I kind of began my full time journey. And this is a great lesson in being open to what you should do, not what you think you're going to do. I thought I was going to come back and do private equity initially, right? I have a background in merging acquisitions. I was an MA banker for a long time. Oh, this would be perfect for me. And I thought I'd also do real estate development because it's a passion. And when I got here, I realized very quickly that private equity wasn't going to be the option I thought it was. I didn't have the business connections. I wasn't a known entity here. It was going to take a lot longer, despite my background, I thought, to kind of break into the marketplace. So that was a kind of original uh, uh, quick lesson learned. The second lesson was I thought because of my institutional relationships, I was going to bring the bricks truck of money with me to Detroit and everything was going to be graving off to the races. And I learned that wasn't the case either. I learned that very quickly that um, I knew, but it was reminded of reminded to me that you know, institutional capital follows relatively safe bets. And all my relationships are institutional capital. And at the time, Detroit wasn't a safe bet. It was a growth play. It was a very, it was a visionary play. Uh, and so what I thought I was going to bring to Detroit wasn't there waiting for me when I started. And so I had to re, kind of redefine what my mission was going to be. And so I, I really focused on getting kind of going 100 percent into real estate development and finding a way to have impact in communities and find a way to uh, start building up my firm and making my mark. So real estate development, I committed to. And despite me not wanting to do it, I kept getting tons of requests to do provide consulting services. And the more I would uh, try to push them away, the more they came. And so I started to really focus on building our consulting firm, which is Urge Imprint. Uh, and so that became my two parallel focuses, running Urgent Print, which is a boutique consulting firm, as well as building Urge Development Group, which is a real estate development firm focused on creative placemaking and creative placekeeping in the uh, urban city centers, as well as the surrounding neighborhoods. And what type of, of consulting do you do? Uh, so I think we do uh, strategic management consulting, everything from organizational design, strategic plans, planning and analysis work. Uh, one thing that also differentiates us is that we not only do the strategy, we actually can take it down and do the actual implementation and execution. So we provide um, staff augmentation services for our clients as well, where we actually provide them execution staff to actually support the execution of the strategies and initiatives that we help them develop. And that's a unique uh, proposition because not only does it take the strategy, it actually takes co- makes it cohesive, the team that's actually going to execute it. Normally consultants hand you a strategy, wash their hands, and they say, see you later, I hope it works. Whereas we do the strategy for you and actually help you figure out how to implement it. And then when you fall short, we step in and help you get over the finish line. 
So tell us a little bit about some of the development projects that you have embarked upon since returning. It's been an interesting ride and a journey. So the first project I was involved in was one I should not have been involved in. And that was, again, like I'm all about telling the truth and giving you my real lessons. Uh, and it was a lesson in ego and purpose again. Right. Uh, I was I came home to the deal that everyone thought I should have been in. Right. One of the biggest deals ever launched by uh, announced by a development team. I was partnering with some individuals out of New York uh, and it was going to be a massive development, made all the headlines. It was just a it was one of those bellwether deals. And in the course of the transaction, I realized I had no business in that transaction. From a risk and war standpoint, I just wasn't equally matched. Right. Had all the skills and capabilities. But financially, I didn't have the full arsenal necessary to really play in a real way without overly risking myself. But two, it just wasn't on my purpose. Right. It just what they were trying to accomplish was not my goal and focus of having systemic change and impacting communities that like me and you. Right. And. It was a hard lesson for me to learn very quickly because I was very concerned about looking like a failure, to be honest with you. Right. I didn't want to be the guy that in the first deal that came home had to re go around with my hat in hand and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I need to back out. But as I kept uh, meditating on, is this what I should be doing? I quickly realized I should not. And it was the first lesson in authenticity that I learned when I came back home. That I'm, I got one story to tell. And I'm, I'm going to tell it always. And when I was very true to myself, and my purpose, about look, this is not a deal I should be in and explain to folks why. The first reaction everyone had was. It shouldn't have been the deal, no way. Uh, so every, everybody else saw it. Everybody else saw it, but me. But I'm worried about being looked at as a failure, right? And right. the moment I did that, everything took off, right? It helped me redefine my purpose because everyone knew what I stood for. I was about systemic impact, systemic change in the city centers and the neighborhoods. And I want to do it in a way that was inclusive, right? And provide avenues for folks to come after me. And that's been my, our motto ever since. So we focus on... Uh, going into areas that often have not been touched yet. They're tangentially close to areas that have been worked, where development is happening, but there hasn't quite gotten that neighborhood yet. We go there. We go into areas where we can see new commercial activity. We go there. We go areas that people are afraid of oftentimes because, you know, it's too far away. We go there. Why? Because not only does it have, of course, the outset the, the potential for outsized economic return, but more importantly, has the potential for outside systematic change. If I go into a corridor where they haven't had a new development project or new construction in 40 years, those are influx of new jobs. Every new business we create there actually is new employees in the neighborhood. It's new services. When new services happen, people want to move in neighborhoods. People move in neighborhoods, property values go up. Property values go up. People earn equity, right? It's this great self-fulfilling prophecy, but somebody has to be willing to go deep and go first. And we're willing to do that. And so we've done that on, we have currently in development um, 70,000 square feet of projects. Um, we are building 70 apart, seventy units, you know, over 10,000 square feet of retail space. Um, that's currently under construction. Um, we are, we have a pipeline that has another potentially two, about 200 units in it uh, on the ready. And we also have, we're in the process of some capital raising that allows us to do another two or 300. And so we've decided that it was really a great opportunity to be in Detroit, that if you're willing to put the effort in and have a long term view, which is another important about our perspective. I'm not in it for two, three, four year flips. These are 10, 20 year. I'm making generational here. 
And that's what excites me, right? That we have the ability and the wherewithal to take a generational view, that we can build something that's going to last generations, and that we have the ability to uh, create and change neighborhoods and communities that people have been willing to let, let die, right? And I will admit that there's been a lot of support from the city of Detroit, so great public-private partnership. So we've been able to find the right areas we can get the support from the city, couple that with public, uh, the private support and philanthropic dollars, and create a solution that we really think wins. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're you're getting the support because one of the questions I had was how difficult was it to get the buy-in to to go into places that weren't the hot spots yet. So now the initial buy-in took some work, right? And so I, I tell everybody this is not an overnight process. Uh, so I, I landed in 2016. It took us four years to close the financing on our first development project. So it's a process of getting people to understand that I wasn't fly by night, that I had the right team, that I was truly committed, right? And that I knew what I was talking about and that my numbers stood up and stacked up. And it just, we took the time and just built relationships with the city, the funders, the lenders, the philanthropic organization, the foundations, and gained the credibility so that even though it took a little longer, our relationships are strong. So we went from taking four years to close one deal we closed one deal last year. We just closed another deal on Monday. So now we're two years in a row and we'll close another one next year and the year after and the year after. So we did the approach of invest early, plant good seeds. And then once the, the tree starts bearing fruit, you can always eat. What have you seen in terms of the benefit of people seeing you, like your presence as a black man in Detroit, leading some of these deals, initiating some of those deals. Have you gotten any feedback? I would imagine you have in terms of how you've inspired other young people to to, to see you in this space. Yeah, I think it's uh, young people, people my age, old people, everybody, because usually when the folks come in the neighborhood, they don't look like us. Right. right. And it feels different. It, and, and so I, I and I try to be um, there's a lot of systemic issues going on. Right. But I also try to realize that people are people and human, right? And everyone's either afraid, ignorant, or hold that whole gambit, right? And oftentimes what they're bringing to the table is not their outward bias, it's their ignorance, right? And so they're just uncomfortable. And so they come in with their own perspective of what the world should be and what was acceptable in their community. They don't fly in the hood, right? And so and that became that creates opposition. Right. And so we try to like we take time. So we, we've taken two years to do community development before project launch. Right. Because it's necessary. We keep going. We keep showing up. Right. People recognize us when we go to our building. Well, before the construction starts, they see us keep running out there. They know who we are. Um, so that image creates trust. It also changes the view of hopelessness, too. Right. Yes. The, I think uh, youth see it and they can see vision of what they can do in the future, which is phenomenal. But it also folks that look my age, they say, hold up, maybe the world ain't got to be as hopeless. Maybe I got a shot. Maybe I can get a job in the restaurant. And I was like, yes, you can. Let's go for it. Right. You do your part. We'll help do our part. Um, and that's a big piece of it. Just to being able to show everyone that you can re you can actually change a narrative. You can be impactful in each of our own little small ways. Right. I mean, you sit on a lot of boards and you speak in a lot of places and a lot of schools. Is it's what's the message that you bring? Is it one that we can all be included, that economic um, empowerment is, is possible for everyone? Yes, it is. And I want to fight for it. So uh, I try to tell folks that, uh, you know, there are 
I, I look at economic empowerment and freedom as like that last bastion of the civil rights movement. Um, there are a lot of tables that folks have we've broken into, and there's a lot of we've been excluded from. And having worked in Wall Street, I've been able to see it, right? Um, I know what it's like when you walk into a public board room and there's nobody there that looks like us, right? And uh, no women, no brown or black folks, right? That makes a difference, right? And so I, I and so I, I am quite adamant and focused on making sure this access is important. The development is not just about getting making generational wealth for me, us and our firm. It's about making systemic change in the communities so everyone gets to feed off this system. Um, but part of that comes with responsibility that I also have to push the envelope when things still aren't quite right. And the access to capital that black and brown and women minorities have is just far shy, far, far cry from what others do, right? Yes, there are select few of folks you know, and I would, people probably say I'm included. They have tapped a tree of access, but it doesn't matter if I can tap the tree. The question is, can you tap the tree? And if it has to be the special guy who spent 20 years on Wall Street, made MD, ran a bunch of businesses, and did all types of stuff that you know others couldn't do, period, that's what it takes to get capital, then that's not fair. I want the average person, the average black and brown person to say, mm, I'm just pretty good at what I do. And you should have a shot, too. And so we spent a lot of time talking about access to capital and pushing through and putting in programs that provide that capital, whether it's debt capital, equity capital, as well as advocating for others. I think that's a big piece that, you know, oftentimes that is not underscored enough. Usually when somebody has made it, somebody has vouched for them. And I am, I am definitely a, a product of that. There are many folks currently in Detroit who have been vouching for me since I got back, which is, and that's part of the reason, if not a large chunk of the reason why I've been successful. Because people said, oh, he's the right one. He's the credible one. He's the next one. Even before I did anything, which, as you know, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Had they say he is not that guy, he is not the right one, then the game would have been over before I started. You know, we, we talked about this last week as well. You know, I, I've gone to enough conferences. I know you have. We've read enough articles where everyone says we want to be able to fund people. We want to, we, we, you know, we want diverse communities. We want diverse businesses. Why are we still having the same conversation? And, and particularly since you're teaching people, I, I'm curious, when does the aha moment come on the other side of the table? Does it come or what are people still like either unaware of or clueless about in terms of the, the, the playing ground just not being level? Yeah, still. I had a very unique conversation today. So I, and I have, uh, you know, I used to spend my time only focused with our communities and like, like I would do stuff and I'd be in a room with a lot of like-minded folks and that's good work. But as I came back to Detroit, I started getting in a room with folks who were not quite as like-minded and, and controlled some purse strings and some access points that we needed. And that has been a lesson in patience and understanding, but it's also a lesson in communication. I had to realize that, again, if I didn't assume you were evil or bad, I just assumed you were ignorant. And that's not a, that's just, you know, you have lack of information. If you're ignorant, then I have, a, then I'm okay to educate. And sometimes you got to educate in a direct and somewhat harsh way sometimes. Sometimes you got to shake them, shake the tree so they can hear it and feel it. Right. But also you have to do it in a way that they can hear it. One thing I had to learn quickly was that whenever I felt attacked and demonized, I'm not hearing nothing. That's just pull up the sleeve. Right. If I don't demonize, but I can connect 
helping understand why it's good in your own self-interest, I've been able to find allies because they're self-interested. What I hate is a racist, unself-interested bigot. You them on all fronts. You can't even do a good for you, right? But I also find some folks that were previously ignorant, but with a little bit of education and knowledge, they can at least be an uh, unobstructive ally and sometimes even constructive ally. And sometimes be the whole whole view. But it takes a lot of energy, right? But I'm not delusional that I'm sitting there waiting for them, everyone else to solve our problems. Now I'm I'm in the front line with other folks trying to raise a fund, right, to provide equity so that developers that are like me and you have a shot to do this in Detroit by ourselves, right? That's part of our mission. I want to take that one fund to two funds and two funds to three funds, right? I'm in the middle of the policy rooms trying to change some things that will systemically allow folks to realize value that they previously have been excluded from. It's just it's a it's one of those things that you know people comment that my hands in all on all the pots, and the answer is you are right. Right, because a lot of problems are solved, and so if you want to, you want to put your hand in a pot. I'll take mine out, but until you put your hand in, I got work to do. Okay, and so you want to do this beyond Detroit, though. This is not just about Detroit for you. Well, have you already started either looking into other communities um, in the United States, globally? Uh, where are you in in that? Great question. So, uh, I am. I, I my 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 son says my son's an artist, right? He's a recording mm-hmm. artist and musician. He says, he tells, he reminds me all the time that we live in the future, right? Um, he has to create music years from down the road, right? He has to stay ahead of the curve. I have to build for the future. What I put on, what comes to fruition in next year was conceived five or 10 years ago. And so we're always building for the future. So yes, I already stake claims for areas in this, in, in around the country and around the world. Because while I say we focus on Detroit today, we're actually focused on the Detroit's around the world, right? That was kind of one of my first things that I knew that it's Detroit today, but it's the Detroit's around the world tomorrow, right? From a development perspective, there are lots of cities, whether it be the St. Louis's, the Indianapolis of the world, the Birmingham's that have similar characteristics, the Buffalo's, similar characteristics of Detroit. And if we can find ways to be impactful, then I can find partners to help me do the work in other places. But that's also the same globally, whether it be in Ghana, Right, whether it be in other parts of the world, like there are definitely key places that I'm already looking at um, to expand the message. And then from a consulting standpoint, we've already started to expand that umbrella. Uh, we've already started to go nationally and federally, uh, and even uh, have some conversations about some international workers already. Already, so yes, we're trying to we're trying to make sure that we do it in a way that is smart, that is prudent and effective, um, and also allows us to stay on mission. Right, you know, it's no good to just be big for the sake of being big, right? The you know financial reward success will come. For us, it's all about, are we having the impact? Are we making the change, right? Are our lives changed? Are organizations reformed? If we're doing that work, everything else takes care of itself. You are also an author trying to get there, navigating your success. And you wrote that before you got to Detroit. It's available on Amazon. So for people who want to be able to check it out, it's your first book. I'm betting that there's there are a couple of other books in you just waiting to be birthed. Yes. I, so, I, yes, there are. And I have uh, they're, they're already newly in my head. There are two right now that are in intellectual kind of outline right now um, because it's I there was a there. there was, I thought I was had a certain freedom right now. Book. And the book was freeing. And I realized I, what, I didn't have freedom. Right. 
there are names in the book that are changed because I worked at a big firm when I wrote it. There are stories that are probably glossed over because I worked at a big firm when I wrote it. And I had, there was a vantage point of view that I didn't truly appreciate until I left the firm. But being on your own, being an entrepreneur, kind of having to basically eat what you kill and then feed everybody with you is a different proposition. It teaches you different lessons, but it also teaches you the importance of the interconnectedity of the ecosystem, right? The, my view of politics and business and community and culture is not one different silos. It's all interconnected circles, right? They're all connected. They all matter. And if you're not thoughtful about all of those, then you're ultimately going to miss the joke, right? And so I definitely want to write another book that kind of helps you understand this entrepreneurial journey in a much more transparent and very direct way. You know, I think if I, if I, if it, if it doesn't change, it'll be called something like pawns to players, right? Right, because you know we went from being a corporate tool, piece on a, on a chessboard to the person actually controlling the game. And I think my goal is to make sure it's more of us controlling the game going forward. I haven't asked this for um, to any other guests, but um, what books do do you read, or, or do you have a favorite business book, or do you have, if you had to recommend a book to someone, what would that be for business? Uh, so I, I'm gonna give you one that's probably most people, some people have heard, and I'm one that's going to be a kind of oddball. First one is going to be uh, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? That actually, that's probably the reason why you're talking to me. I read wow. that book in college before I went to Wall Street in my internship, and that was just enough to know I could succeed. Just enough. I had the pleasure to, uh, to meet his wife and his family, and like it, it, he let me know what's possible. Even though he wasn't with us on the physical, he was with us in the spirit, right? And he let me know I could actually do that. And the next one is, it's actually a Buddhist book. It's called Being Peace. Being Peace. And that is, so I, my, just to put in context, so my degree in undergrad is accounting and philosophy. Accounting got me the job. Philosophy is what made me successful. It taught me how to think. And I spent a lot of time reading religious and Eastern philosophical texts. The reason why that book is so important to me is because it helps me, keeps me centered, right? My entire career professionally is always in the middle of the storm, right? I'm always doing a deal, a trade. I'm always fighting an issue. I'm trying to change policy. I'm always trying to change the world, right, for the better, at least from my vantage point. Everyone doesn't always agree, but I'm trying to do, at least I have confidence. I sleep well at night because I believe I'm doing right. But in the midst of that, you got to find your peace. You got to find a way not to become overwhelmed. Not to become so focused on the external, but focused on the connected, the internal, right? And so that book helps, has always helped me stay centered in the eye of the storm, helps me understand what I'm really doing, who I'm really doing it for. And that's what helps me kind of stay grounded. So, you know, other than the religious texts that I can go through the Bible and all those, but those two are being peace and why should white guys have all the fun? Okay, I love, I love the balance in it. Uh, so what can we expect next from your firm? We know that you're going to be growing nationally, internationally, but from someone who is very analytical and, and thinking so far out in front, what can we expect? I, I would say the most important thing won't be what projects I develop. It won't be how many units we put up, how many cities we're in. So if I had to judge myself by one piece of success, it would be how much capital how much opportunity I give to others in the next five or 10 years. So I'd probably say my most important priority 
And it's the one that will make me the less money is raising this fund. This is a social fund, a social venture with a philanthropic partner. And getting that done is critical to me because that will allow not only just to in lip service, create a cadre of folks to come after me, but in action because it'll take the barrier away and the resource barrier. And let's be very clear, the money barrier, the capital barrier, the cash barrier, uh, folks to put in, get in deals that they normally would have to say no to. And we'll get to step in and say, hey, let us help. You do your part. We'll do our part and we'll help you do something that you never dreamed of. Well, that sounds amazing. How can we follow your progress? How can folks stay in touch with you on your social, on LinkedIn? So you definitely follow us. So go to our firm website. It's Urge Imprint, U-R-G-E-I-M-P-R-I-N-T.com. You can also follow us, um, the, the firm on Urge Imprint on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on uh, Instagram. And then personally, you can follow me at, at R.A. Hardeman, which is at R-A-H-A-R-D-A-M-O-N.com, as well as you can follow me on LinkedIn at Roderick Hardeman. Okay. Well, thank you. We wish you all the best. We know you're going to be successful, and Detroit is very lucky to have you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to reconnect. Same here. Same here. Absolutely. The Business First Podcast is hosted and produced by Sonia Lee. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Business First Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on social at business underscore first underscore podcast on IG. The Business First Podcast is a mean old line media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.